Hey, turn in your Bible to um, Mark 7. That's the passage we're going to use today. It's going to show us Jesus real clearly. It's going to do a lot of work for us. Um, if you were not here last week, we started a series last week called We Are Different. And we looked at those of you, and I'm one of you, by the way, if this is you, um, who are needy bleeders, who are always in chronic need and bleed all over the place, just giant open wounds all the time. So we talked about how you are different from those around you, and you're different from the city. So we looked at how we operate, what we don't believe about the gospel, how we change, how we relate to those who are bleeders, and how we relate to a bleeding city. Right? We looked at all of that. Um, today I might get a little bit of pushback from you, and that's fine. If your heart pushes back, that should indict you a little bit. It means it's talking to you. Um, once again, it's talking to me very loudly, but I'd like to look at those of you who are a legalistic Pharisee, right? A legalistic Pharisee today. This stand is going to drive me nuts today, I can already tell. It's got this gangster lean, and I can't figure out how to fix it. <laughs> We're actually not different at all as legalists. We're all kind of the same because everyone in the room is one. We're all Pharisees. We've all got this little Pharisee inside of us that walks around with a big rule book, right? We follow these rules, and we use these rules to measure ourselves. Therefore, we use these same rules to measure each other. We just look a little different in how that little Pharisee comes out. Um, being a Pharisee doesn't even mean that you're mean or grumpy. We read in the Bible, and every time we see Pharisee or legalist, we think that that guy's got like a big frown on his face, and that's not always the case. It really isn't. We can be quite nice turns out. We could be funny. We could be sweet. We could be hospitable. We could give to the church. We can do set up and tear down. We can be on the stage, and yet at the same time, we can be Pharisees. The core hallmark of a Pharisee is maneuvering our behavior so that we can maneuver God to give us favor in a way, changing the way we act in order to change the way God acts towards us. It's really the core theme of what it means to be a legalist. And to be honest, we don't even really handle the word very well. We kind of use it flippantly. We throw it around uh, whenever we feel like it. It's kind of meant now to be a little bit of a takedown, right? That guy's such a legalist. That, she is such a legalist. They're such a Pharisee. It's meant to cut, it's, it's like a step below heretic, to call someone a heretic is a big deal, but diet heretic is a Pharisee, and we usually say it when someone does not agree with us. But sometimes, I think what we call legalism is nothing more than obedience, right? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will obey my commands? We see it in John 14. He says that. I mean, if I were to come and tell you to, I don't know, teach you maybe on how to handle lust, your eye gate, Maybe your heart, maybe stealing, maybe slander, maybe overeating, maybe undereating. If I were to start talking to you about these things, you would never really consider me a legalist teaching you to be legalistic. I don't know that I would get the, the title of Pharisee real quickly, right? There is no Greek word in the Bible, there's no Greek word for legalist. I'll just say it that way. There's no Hebrew word for legalist, no Aramaic word for legalist, yet we see it a thousand times in the Bible in, in many different ways, and we see it among us as well. So what does it look like? What does it look like for you to be a legalist? What does your Pharisee look like, right? And when is behavior being obedient, and when is it just being sinful? When is it just an application for God's grace, virtually? 
There's actually three different kinds and three different flavors of legalism. And you have to be really careful with this because, like I said, we do misuse the term a lot. One is probably speaking to a smaller group of people in here. Sometimes legalists, they will change their behavior or alter their behavior in order to get or maintain, or not maintain, but really apply for and acquire grace from God. Let's just say it that way, right? Uh, This is virtually every world religion other than Christianity. How can I get God to be for me and not against me, right? What do I need to do to change my behavior to not get punished, but to get blessed? Now, I don't think that that speaks to very many people in here, because I think most of you could probably quote to me, uh, Luke, but I know that's not me because I am saved by grace through faith, not of works. I can't boast, Luke, so I know I don't get grace, for that. But listen, not everybody in here is there. Some of you, you actually believe that. Some of you, maybe church is new. Um, Maybe Jesus isn't someone that you're totally in love with yet. Maybe you're still trying to figure things out. Maybe this is you. And if it is you, I've got some really good news for you today, because that's just not how God treats his children. God does not look at his sons and his daughters and say, I'm about to punish you, or I'm about to unlock the heavens of blessings on you, all dependent on how you act right this minute. It's not how he handles his kids. I think the majority of us fit into the second category, which isn't where we gain favor by our behavior, but we keep it. We don't lose it. Or maybe we increase it by how we act, what we do. So what do I need to do, God, in order for you to not take this away from me? What do I need to do, Lord, in order to get you to increase or amplify this blessing, to give me more blessing than I already have. And so what we'll do is we will shift towards God to keep him from shifting away from us. And a proof that we do this, proof that we do this, is whenever we do something wrong or something wrong happens to us, we immediately look at our behavior. Tire is flat. What did I do to deserve this? Right? Bills come in the mail a lot more than you thought they would be. What did I do to deserve this? Or maybe you commit some sin or you fall into some sin pattern and you wonder how long until the boot drops and my world goes under water. So we look at our behavior and it kind of leads us to what God may or may not do. I think this is true for the majority of us. This is why a lot of us, and by the way, that's that's karma. That's not Christianity. It's not even a Christian belief. I think a lot of people in the South, the more I live in the deep South, One of the ways I see this is people will avoid community, Christian community. They will avoid Christian community and avoid Christian mission whenever they step in deep failure. Whether they get high, or they get drunk, or they do whatever they do, they won't show up to church, they won't show up in your living room to do life with you, they won't tell anyone about Jesus. Why? Why Why all of a sudden the change? It's because they feel like they're not worthy. They have drifted away from God, and therefore, God has drifted away from them. So what do we do? We perform. We start stacking good works until we feel worthy enough to show up again to a community or, or a, uh, show up to tell someone about Jesus. We have to start like bricks, like we're building a wall. God, I'm going to build a wall with so many good works that you won't be able to see over it to see that bad thing I did in that time in that place a week ago. We try to get him to forget about it, maybe, to divert his gaze. Why do we do that? Because that's how we handle each other. (laughs) If I sin against you or you sin against me, what do we do? Our tendency, our flesh, is to avoid each other, isn't it? Until when? Until there's some sort of a peace offering 
something that we do or, or say to each other that kind of makes things cool again, right? Maybe it's an apology. Maybe there's some repentance. Maybe it's a box of chocolates. Maybe it's flowers. That's how humans are. We do something to say, here, this is me. Can we reconcile now? Can we, can we be cool again like we were? It's a peace offering, right? And we do this to God. The thing is, is God has already done it for us. The peace offering was provided by him for us, even though it was our mess and it was in the person of Jesus. I think many of us get caught up in this whirlpool. You too, I think, if this is your flavor of Pharisee, are going to get good news today because you don't have to live like that. We don't have to live like this as people. I think the third flavor all of us in the room are in think the whole world is in and that is where we measure others by the rules that we use to measure ourselves right that wouldn't be happening to that person if they behave like me if they just behave like me that person needs to change if they really want God to bless them to have a good day to honor God to unlock his blessings to do these things they need to behave in fact in fact not just behave they need to behave like I behave this is how we handle it. We feel like because we've worked or we've strived so hard to get what God has given us that we have a good bird's eye view on how others should behave as well. And whatever we use to justify our standing before God, we will push and use to get others to prove themselves. My rules quickly become your rules now. We see this all the time. Have you ever bumped into Christmas as a sin guy? Right? Now, I'm almost this guy, I will tell you, because there's <laughs> no mystery to the fact that I'm not a big Christmas person. But I don't think it's a sin. But I've bumped into guys who do. They think it's a sin. For whatever reason, they'll stack out all the stuff that they downloaded, you know, and printed off their computer that says that it's a sin, and they will tell you Christmas is a sin. And because it's a sin for them, it's a sin for you now. Now their conviction, their, I don't know, tradition has been elevated to the point of divine commandment. And to fail at it is a sin. And if it's a sin for them, they're going to push it on you. This is what happens here. This text, I think, today, Mark 7, I think it's going to help us. It's going to help us see the Pharisee in ourselves. I've been staring at mine all week. I think it's going to help us see how to do life with other Pharisees around us. And I think it's going to help us see a city that lives by its own book of rules. You don't have to be a Christian to be a Pharisee, it turns out, right? So Mark 7, let's look at it. Verse 1 is where we're going to jump in. Verse 1 of Mark 7, this is what God tells us. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Okay, let's pause it just for a minute. I love Mark. Mark is a really fun book to read because... Mark is written to a primary, well, primarily to an audience that is not Jewish. So they don't understand all the cultures and all the traditions and things, and I don't either a lot of the time because I didn't grow up in ancient Palestine as a Jew. So 
He just spells it out for us, and he unpacks it for us, why this stuff is important. And here he's showing us that the disciples of Jesus ate with unwashed hands. Here's the thing. It had nothing to do with hygiene. This washing had nothing to do with hygiene. It was all ritual. They could have actually gone through the ritual washing, which was largely symbolic. They could have done that, showed up to eat with just dirty hands, and the Pharisees wouldn't have even cared. It wasn't scrubbed clean hands. It was a ritual thing that was going to be honored that they had set up. It was all about their rules. It was all about their traditions. There's actually no scriptural backing for this washing unless you were a priest. It wasn't even for the Pharisees. It definitely wasn't for the common man. It was set up by the elders as a tradition, and we see that twice in this passage. It says that. Now, scripturally, priests would wash their hands. Right. There would be a, a ritual cleansing of the hands. Because why? Because they would touch things that would be considered unclean. Like a dead body or someone who was oozing something. It talks about that in the Old Testament. Maybe someone was bleeding. They would have to go and cleanse their hands as a ritual way of saying, I can offer nothing to God unless I have clean hands. What does that point to? I mean, you can get to Jesus anywhere in the Bible. That's pointing to Jesus, the one who had not just clean hands but a clean life and would be a perfect offering to God. So this points to Christ, but what they did is they said, we're going to take that thing that was for the priests, and we're going to make it our own thing. We're going to make it our own thing. Not only is it going to be for us, it's going to be for you too. And not only is it not good that you don't do it, or maybe untraditional if you don't do it, it's going to be a sin now. That's what's going on here. Have you ever bumped into we follow all the Jewish holidays guy? Is there anything wrong with the Jewish holidays? No. They're super cool. Listen, if you celebrate those with your family, keep on rocking. Do it. Because in all of those festivals, all of those moments, they all point to Jesus. And it just doesn't take long to get there. It's so easy to, sh to, to see Jesus in some of the things that the ancient Jews did. It's beautiful to do that. So is it okay to do that? Yes. Is it okay to do that to prove yourself worthy before God? No. It's legalism. Is it okay to extend that to somebody else? Not really. Well, Luke, if you don't do it, is it a sin? Absolutely not. It isn't. But this is what they were doing. Most Pharisees regarded the breaking of these traditions as sin. And that's what they did, and that's what we do, because that's what all legalists do. All legalists call the breaking of their traditions sin. And then they compare themselves to those who are sinning. All right? Jesus, and you can tell he's about fed up with this by then. Jesus gets in there and he draws a big distinction between the commandments of God and the traditions of man. Right? And you can tell he is done with the dumb legalism. He's had it, right? He amps it up a little bit, and he says this in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Okay, we can't get lost on a word here, which is going to be easy to get lost on. It's the word hypocrites. Chronologically, this is the very first time Jesus ever called the Pharisees a hypocrite. Right? This is the first time he pulled the pin out of the grenade and threw it. This was the first time he said this. 
we lose that because it feels like every time we see Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he's dropping that word. He's calling them hypocrites all the time. It seems like you can't even find them. They're all inseparable. Jesus, Pharisees, hypocrites. It's going to be somewhere in the paragraph. But this is the first time he steps in and calls them frauds and fakes. You're frauds and fakes. And these aren't the local yokel Pharisees. These, this is upper management that had come in from Jerusalem. And he stepped in and called them all frauds. Can you get behind that? It would have seemed a little bit too much for many of us. If we were transported there and understood their, their laws and their mores and how they operated, we would have thought, God, that's a little, Jesus, tap the brakes a little bit. I mean, ease up. That seems a little much. We know this because there's a parallel um, story to this. This story is actually in Matthew as well as it is in Mark. And in the Matthew version, it says this, Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus, wait a minute. Do, do you understand what you just said? I mean, it's about to get real for us now. You called them all frauds. I mean, did you mean to do that? Did you see something we didn't see? It just seems like a lot. You know, as a side note, this isn't even in my notes, which is always a good indicator that you shouldn't go there. But this is why, if you're reaching out to those who are in the city, in the smoking sections of Knoxville, right, this is why a lot of people are infatuated with the idea of Jesus. They don't love Jesus, but they love the idea of Jesus because they see him as a rebel without a cause. Always sticking it to the man. Around the religious leaders, Jesus sticking it to the man. Around the, the, the kings of the day, sticking it to the man. He's always doing whatever he wants because he doesn't even care. Rebel without a cause. But that's not true. He was rebel for another's cause. He was never bowing his chest just to stick it to the man. He didn't do anything unless God told him to do it or say it. He wasn't living without a care. He was caring for another's plan. He loved his father, right? It's helpful to help people see that. So whenever they're saying, you know what I love about Jesus? I love that he didn't care about what anybody thought. Well, I see why you say that, but he actually did care about how someone thought. He did care about somebody's plan, you know? Let's, anyway, sidebar, I'm going to get back to it. Verse 9, verse 9. And he said to them, now he's, okay, now what he's about to do is he's about to come against the Pharisees by giving them an example, which he does so well. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. That's very key right there. Corbin, we need to talk about that. That's not a person's name, even though that sounds like a cool name. Corbin is a little bit like declaring shotgun today if you're in the parking lot. Shotgun. You're calling dibs on something. Corbin was a Jewish tradition that you could declare for your possessions, your money, your property, that says this, I'm dedicating this to God. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to give it to the church or the priests. It doesn't even mean that you have to quit using it. It just means you don't have to give it away to anybody, especially your needy parents. This is something that was set up by the elders. It's not in the Bible. 
It's something that came about as a part of tradition. And the Pharisees were abusing God's beautiful principles, which is taking care of your family. They were up saying that is not important. What's important is the tradition, which is Corbin. I think what gets me is what he finishes with, though. And many such things you do. And many, I mean, the goofiness doesn't stop with you guys. And many such things you do. You're always doing something like this. Don't even get me started on the Sabbath. All kinds of crazy weirdness. I'm sick of it. And many such things you do. And many such things we do. Because we are them. We have our own book of rules. We pretend that it's the Bible. A lot of the rules we follow aren't even in the Bible. We scribble them in on the back cover and we elevate them to where they are just as important. This is us. And the lie, the singular lie that resonates in our gut whenever we do this is, God, you're not very gracious. You're not gracious. You're not. I have to prove myself. You grade me every day on a scale of 1 to 10, Lord. And whenever I'm performing at a 1, I get a rainy day. But whenever I'm a 10, the sun comes out. So I have to prove myself. I need to do stuff so that you do stuff. Why? Because you pay out accordingly and you are not gracious. There's no grace in you. And we never say this, but it's the accusation of our hearts. That's the declaration against God. We just don't believe He is that gracious. So we have to prove ourselves. And because we have to prove ourselves, we expect others to prove themselves too. But there's gospel. There's gospel for the legalistic Pharisee. For all of us. And that is, God is gracious, so we need not prove ourselves. It's good news. Now, we introduced something last week called the four G's, which is going to be something that we're going to use for the next several weeks. Um, you, you can go ahead and put it up there if you want, Trevor. The one we went over last week, which is, God is great, so I need not be in control. The one we're going to look at today is, God is gracious, so I need not prove myself. God is gracious, and pretty soon we'll have these on cards, and you guys can stick them in your Bible or your books or whatever, so you don't have to memorize that or anything weird like that. Um, but listen, we were unable to win God's favor with our achievements. We are unable to keep God's favor because of our achievements. We are unable to increase God's favor towards us because of our achievements, and we are unable to lose God's favor because of our lack of achievements. That's because it's simply not up to us. It was Jesus Christ's radical achievements that are swapped out for our failing ones. And God, in that bloody cross, and in that empty tomb, is satisfied with the trade. He's satisfied with the trade. I love Romans 5. We're going to look at that. That's a great tandem passage for this part of God's good news for us. And in verse 6, what Paul tells us in the book of Romans is, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? You weren't found doing impressive things. You were found misbehaving. We were found misbehaving. Since therefore, 
verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's the gospel of grace. Grace being God's favor and blessing given to you, totally despite you. Listen, the gospel of grace is very simply the greatest news that has ever entered mankind's ears. There's never been anything ever heard in the history of man that is as sweet and as perfect as the gospel of grace. A man hearing from his wife, I love you, is not as good as this. A wife hearing from her husband, I love you, is not as good as this. I now join you as man and wife, is, is not as good as this news. It's a boy, is not as good as this news. It's a girl, you've got the job. No, nothing mankind has ever heard is as good as this, this news that your striving is done. The news that you don't have to prove yourself. Jesus has done the work. It's the greatest news ever heard. You need not apply for grace anymore. It's been handed to you in its fullest form in the person of Christ. Some of you, me, some of us, must just be so tired of striving. Just exhausted, just exhausted from striving god if i just do this would you please then do this if i could just get my stuff together over here then god will surely do this if i quit doing this over here then god, always blanks to fill in isn't there if i then god but striving and grace they don't meet they they don't mingle the gospel doesn't mingle or mix with legalism they denounce each other if you trust in the gospel, you denounce your works. If you trust in your works, you denounce the gospel. It's the way it works. Notice, at not one point have I said to stop behaving. This is a common accusation that people get that they preach a free grace. They get this a lot. I'm not saying to stop behaving. I'm saying you should behave more. Behave to the max. Behave with every fiber in your being. Just don't do it as one trying to chase down love. Do it as one who is already loved. The motive behind how you behave is actually more important than your behavior. Think about it. Behave as one who is deeply adored, not as one chasing a carrot on the end of a stick, hoping one day to get that thing if they could just try hard enough. How does one change from being a Pharisee? Individuals, how do we change? How do we grow to look less like a Pharisee and more like Christ? It's actually the same prescription I gave last week. It'll probably be the same one I give next week because it's just not that complicated. And I'm glad Jesus made it to where it was not complicated. We just turn and we trust. We repent and we believe. We turn and we trust. What are we turning from? The lie that Pharisees tell themselves, which is God is not graceful. So I must prove myself. We turn from that. We turn from saying that grace is not enough. 
And there's actually a couple things that you can do, a spot check in your lives to tell when it is that you're telling that lie, when it is that you're living that lie that God is not gracious. There's usually a couple ways we do that. What is that thing you do? Now, don't say it out loud. You'll be embarrassed, all right? I know some of you like to participate. Not right now. Keep it in the head. But what is that thing you do that as soon as you are done with it, you think, hmm, now the boot's dropping. I get a demerit there. God's going to break something I love now. He's going to take something away from me now because I've done that. Did you look at something? Did you lie again? Did you drink again? What did you do? What did you do that's going to cause that boot to drop? Conversely, what is that thing you do that you think, that was pretty cool, and it was so cool, it's probably going to wash out some of the stuff I did last week. Did you tell someone about Jesus? Did you show up to church three weeks in a row? Did you write a big check? Was that what you did? Is that your attempt of saying, hey, God, look what I did. I mean, come on, you got to give me props for this. You saw that, right? I mean, you saw that. I mean, I know you saw that last week, but you saw this too, right? Whenever you catch yourself doing that, you're saying things that Pharisees say. This is the language of a legalist. It's what we do. We turn from that, and then we trust in God, that God has done enough for us, that we weren't found doing impressive things, but God sent one who was impressive to trade lives with us. It's called substitutionary atonement. A perfect life substituted for an incredibly imperfect one. A beautiful, spotless life traded for a very scandalous, vandalized one. This is what we see. And i got to switch gears here a little bit because I want to talk not just about how we as Pharisees individually operate, but how we as Pharisees corporately operate. Community, Christian community, what does it look like? Because the problem with Pharisees is we like to take the measuring stick we use to measure ourselves and put it up against everybody else <laughs> and measure them too. We're really adept at this. Richard Lovelace says this. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their achievements, he says that they are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. If you don't believe the gospel, Richard says that you are radically insecure. He says their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others. I agree with him. This is what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus and it's what we do as well. We do the exact same thing. Because what legalism does is it demands conformity. You must conform to what I believe. You must conform to my traditions, to my convictions. And what we do is we take our ideas that we hold very, very valuable, and we elevate it to divine commandment, and we say, now, now, because I feel dirty inside for not doing that thing, you need to feel dirty inside for not doing the exact same thing. Listen, I, I think we do this and we don't even mean to do it a lot of times. Example, if you feel like, if you feel like, let's say, uh, one hour devotional time in the mornings, that that gets God to unlock blessings for you, right? If I could just get seven of those seven days in a row, one week, that's got to be like what? Like one of the best weeks in the world or something? I mean, wouldn't God just be raining blessing on me every day? I mean, it's an hour, Right? If that is what you say makes you more beautiful in God's sight, then you will put it on everybody else. But this is how it looks. 
you'll bump into somebody that is struggling in their life. And you listen to their struggles and you're thinking, man. And then you ask the question and you know you're dying to ask it. So what's your devotional life look like? Says the person who's put seven hours a week on themselves. What does your devotional look like? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's spotty five times a week, maybe 15, 20 minutes. I read a little bit. I pray a little bit. I know what your problem is. You need to triple that time. I do an hour, personally. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying I do an hour, you know? It's legalistic. It's legalistic. Find me a place where it says that an hour of power is what we are prescribed to do. You won't find it. You won't find it. You won't find a lot of things, by the way, which is another sermon. If we think that no tattoos and no piercings make us more beautiful before God, then we will put that on everybody else. We will. Well, I'm not pierced. I'm not pierced. I don't have any tattoos, and I think God approves of that. And then somebody walks in, and they're all lit up, and you say, but that's going to be a sin for them. They're probably not as close to Jesus as I am, right? Or if they are, they're in a band, one of the two. <laughs> Listen, I've not been a Christian for very long, not even two decades, but in the small amount of time I've been a Christian, I've heard some crazy, goofy things stapled to me in the name of Christ, which is actually just legalism. It's just legalism. Luke, I think all Christians should read from the King James Version only if they want to honor God. Now, that's a softball, right? But listen, honoring God is the thing that legalists put on the back of their statements to make it sound like it's divine commandments. I think this is important if you want to honor God. You know? It's an underhanded way of saying, this is divine. I don't think R-rated movies glorify God, Luke. I've heard this a few times. Listen, I don't think a lot of G-rated movies glorify God. I will say that, right? And let me remind you where those classifications come from. It comes from the culture. The culture defines what's an R, a G, and onward. It's the culture. And last I checked, we don't take our cues of what is a sin from the culture. That's not where we take our cues. Take it from the Word of God. Luke, I don't think Christians should ever buy lottery tickets because gambling is addictive. So is food. There's a lot of things that are addictive. We don't qualify something as sin as if it's, or only because it's addictive. We declare war on abuse, not the thing that is abused. We declare war on abuse, not the thing that is abused. Okay? Luke, I think that everyone should raise their hands in worship if they want to honor God. Luke, I think no one should raise their hands in worship if they want to honor God. You see how quickly it can creep in? Because even if you don't say it, many of you think it. You think it. Luke, I think everyone should homeschool their kids if they really want to be good parents. I think no one should homeschool their kids if they want to be missional parents. I've heard both camps. Luke, I think that no Christian should ever listen to rock music, rap music, country music, just Christian music. Check that. Not just Christian music. Christian music with no instruments in it. Just voices. Written by the reformers. You know? Luke, I think Christians should never date, only court, because that's what they did in the Bible. Listen, here is my favorite one of all. What does that even mean? Right? <laughs> so what are you guys on right now? A date? Well, yeah, but we're courting. Okay, so what's the difference? Well, we've got another couple here. That's a double date. So you're double dating, right? <laughs> So what does that mean? Well, we're not going to kiss until we get married. Okay, but it's still a date, right? I mean, it's still a, you're on a date. It's a date. Don't be weird. It's a date. It's just a date. It's just a date. 
Luke, I think that we should never drink alcohol because so many struggle and die from it. True statement. That's a true statement. Lots of people struggle and die from abusing alcohol. And this is where Pharisees do their worst, is because they take a true statement like that and then they cloak law around it. John Piper had to struggle with this back in the early 1980s when he was a much younger pastor. And as a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, there was a provision that was on the board to be voted for. And it was this. Should we or should we not let people be members of Bethlehem if they drink? If they drink. Not get drunk, but drink. Are we going to be a teetotaling church or a church of abstentionists? This is what Piper says. Who is, who is an abstentionist, by the way. This is what he said. I want to hate what God hates and love what God loves. And this I know beyond the shadow of a doubt. God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. If any of you still wonders why I go on supporting this amendment after hearing all the tragic stories about lives ruined through alcohol, the reason is that when I go home at night and close my eyes and let eternity rinse up in my mind, I see 10 million more people in hell because of legalism than because of alcoholism. I agree with John. I agree with John. Listen, where do you extend your ruler to others? Is it what God says or is it what you think? Is Halloween a thing for you? Let it be a thing for you. It's okay. There's, listen, there's nothing wrong with traditions. Traditions are fantastic. But they don't approve you before God. And they don't declare what is or is not sin. Cut your cable. Buy a jet ski. Listen, when we measure others by how we measure ourselves, we will always get legalism. But when we measure each other by how God measures us, we get grace. There's really only two ways to do it. When we measure each other, when we measure each other by how we measure ourselves, we will always get legalism. But whenever we measure each other by how God measures us, we can only end up with grace. We handle others with grace because we were handled with grace. It means doing life with those who are very different from us, who live different, eat different, drink different, school different, talk different, watch different. It means doing life with a very different people. Have you ever stopped to think, and you might or might not have, as a pastor, I think about this constantly, what we're doing, called community, is impossible without the gospel. How dumb is this endeavor without the gospel? It's just failed from the get-go. I can barely do life successfully with my own family every single day without the gospel. What chance do we have when we are, in fact, very, 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 very different from each other? It's amazing what God has done for us. You know, about 10 or 12 years ago, my old pastor, he gave me a saying, and I don't know if he read this or made it up, but I ripped it off. I know that because it's a very good one. And he says this, Luke, if it's in the Bible, it's true and it's binding. If it's not in the Bible, it might be true, but it can never be binding. Think about that. I'm going to say it again. Luke, if it's, in the, if it's in the Bible, it is true and it is binding. But if it's not in the Bible, it might be true, but it cannot be binding. Netflix might be bad idea for you friend for you the truth is the right thing is to cut it right but it can't be binding on others neither can how we handle alcohol 
homeschool or dating. But you could talk to premarital sex all day long. You could talk to drunkenness and addiction all day long because the Bible is very clear on those things. This is important because nothing will trash its way right through a community and destroy it as fast as legalism will, besides maybe slander and offense. That'll do the job just as quick, right? But nothing destroys a church quite like legalism does. It is a community destroyer, and all of it is born out of a personal insecurity that God does not love me because I am not behaving. That's where it all comes from. So if we're able to grow as an individuals and then grow together as a corporate body, how do we reach a city? What does mission look like? Because they just keep their own rules, or at least they try, right? L listen, this is how it all breaks down. Pagans are going to act like pagans. People that don't love Jesus are going to act like people who don't love Jesus. People who are not close to Jesus are amazingly consistent. Because they say, I don't love God, and then they act like they don't love God. At least in the church, we say we do love God, yet we act like we don't love God. <laughs> At least they're being true. At least they're being consistent. Listen, they're not going to follow your rules. I didn't. I didn't. Preachers, Christians coming up to me and telling me the rules that I ought to swap for, I need to give up my rule for that rule, <laughs> not going to do it. You can't freak out at that. Stop freaking out that they're cussing in front of you. Stop freaking out that they're making out with the same sex in public, in front of your kids. Stop freaking out that they have tattoos in weird places saying things that you would not say in public. What else are they going to do? They have no Holy Spirit rattling around inside of them. They're going to act like that. That's, that's mankind. That's you absent of grace. They can't even follow their own rules. They're definitely not going to follow yours. Now I know the difficulty because there seems like there's a giant gulf in between you and those who do not love Jesus. But it's not anything compared to the gulf that was between God and you. Think about it. Missionally, as a missionary, God crossed a bigger delta to get to us. We had much more not in common with God than we do with the person in front of us in line at Chipotle, right? Yeah, you look like you're miles apart socially, but you're really not. Not. You're not. I think our immediate tendency with people is to lead them to a new set of rules as Christians. Let's do this. Let's lead them to a rule giver. Let's not ask them to trade behaviors. Let's ask them to trade kings. Trade gods, because your rules will not change their heart. We're talking about a, listen, your rules will not change their heart. I always use this passage because it's a favorite of mine, but in Ezekiel 11, is this going to be up there? Do we have it? Ezekiel 11. And I will give them one heart, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. That they shall be my people and I will be their God. Let God change their hearts. Lead them to God. Lead them to a new king. Let him do the heart surgery. They will want to change their behavior. 
not because you're comparing yours to theirs and just trying to convince them with some bad sales technique that they're better off with your rules than with theirs. Show them a Jesus. Show them Jesus. Some of you in here, and I'm having to finish this now, some of you in here, you have always had a hard time changing your behavior. That's what we do. We start with our behavior. Growth or cleanliness before God becomes one of managing our behavior. Some of you just have a heart of stone. And I would say, forget the behavior for a moment. Look at your God. Look at your King. Right? Who is it? Christ makes a better King. Christ makes a better King. I think all of us in here who love Jesus have got to be more gospel fluent in those times where we think that God is either about to smash us or unlock all the blessings upon us because we just can't obey and behave right. Or we can, maybe. We need to be more gospel fluent and saying, God, you are gracious. On my best day, you are gracious. On my worst day, you are gracious. And on my worst day, you don't love me any less than you do when I am on my best day. We have to be wicked good at saying that all the time. All the time. And we need to be able to extend that to others, the grace. I need to pray. Let me pray. I'll tell you, go ahead, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to take communion. How we do this is we just do it whenever you feel like it over the next few songs. So the lights will be off. You'll be able to kind of leak back there. We have uh, bread and we have juice. And it, what it does is it shows us a broken body and it shows us spilt blood. Okay, And we take that to point back to what the cross has done for us and to point forward to where God is leading us to a new banquet. And as we do this, I want you to just ask God, Lord, where do you see a Pharisee in my heart? Where have I made some of my convictions and ideas and rules on the same level as yours? Where am I doing that? Where am I judging others? Where have I become so insecure that now I'm judging others to prove themselves like I'm trying to prove myself? Where have I done that as well? And wrestle with God. Wrestle with God in this moment. Some of you need to wrestle with your salvation. And we're, and we're here to talk to you as well, if that's you. We've got Wes in the back. He'll be in the back. Chris is in the back. We have some folks that will be able to talk to you that are going to be in the back on the edges of the aisles. And listen, if you need to talk to someone about where you stand with Christ, now is the time to do it. Now's the time to do it. Trade kings today. Trade kings today. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you that you are a gracious God. You are gracious, God. So I need not prove myself. Thank you for the sweet message which is your gospel of grace. That my performance is null. My behavior, it doesn't get me anything more than what you've already given me because of Jesus' behavior. Lord, your gospel is so simple and so sweet, it's almost unbelievable. Except for you quicken it in our hearts with your Holy Spirit, we would not even believe it. It's too good to be true. Yet you do quicken it, and you do bring a beautiful revelation. And I even pray that today as we sing and as we, as we smile and we talk and we fellowship and we drink juice and write checks and, and we eat bread and we, as we do the things we do that say we are worshiping you, Lord, as we do that, that you would bring even deeper revelation as to how gracious you are. 
Lord, never am I more on my face as when you show me the level of grace. It is so provocative, God. My only response is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You have all of my behavior. I'll behave even more. Not because because you're going to take something away from me or punish me or even give me more, but because of what you have already done. My heart's response is to change. Oh, Lord, you're good. You're good and we love you. Help us as we pray and as we worship. Lead our hearts, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.